I uh, want to thank our senior pastor for uh, entrusting the pulpit, um, having the confidence uh, and trust in our elders uh, to really help us develop our, our preaching uh, gifts. And uh, you don't see that in too many pulpits in America. So thank you very much, Pastor Allen. And uh, I just want to do a quick shout out to all of my uh, fellows in the uh, C.S. Lewis Institute program here in Chicago. Uh, Steve, thanks for bringing your boys. You got my check for uh, Father of the Year award, okay? So, uh, and uh, we're led by our uh, fearless Marine leader. He literally is a Marine, uh, K.J. Johnson. And uh, thank you so much for giving me a trove of uh, lifetime of, of preaching and, and teaching material here, which I'll use uh, immediately this morning. So speaking of C.S. Lewis, um, he, he certainly had a lot of thoughts on things, almost every issue in life, actually. <laughs> and he certainly had a, a thought or two about Christmas. So um, he, uh, you know, a member, a member approached me last week and she said, you know what, I feel so pressured, you know, to, to get everything done on time and get to so many parties, you know, and, and uh, you just feel your metabolism just running out of whack around this time of year. And C.S. Lewis uh, certainly had a lot of things in his day to say uh, about Christmas uh, as he wrote to a friend in 1953. He said this about the over-commercialization uh, of Christmas. He said, I feel exactly as you do about the horrid commercial racket they have made out of Christmas. Two years later, writing to the same friend, he said, I'm afraid I hate the weeks just before Christmas, and so much of the very commercialized and vulgarized fuss has nothing to do with the nativity at all. I mean, he just told people what he thought. Um, in 1958... He wrote, just a hurried line to tell a story which puts the contrast between our feast of the nativity and all this ghastly Xmas racket at its lowest. My brother heard a woman on a bus say, as the bus passed a church with a crib outside it, Oh, Lord, they bring religion into everything. Look, they're dragging even Christmas into it. Lewis described the com commercialization of Christmas as one of his pet abominations. His focus was not on sentimental religious ritual, on the giving and receiving of presents. Actually, he didn't write any cards, didn't give any presents to adults, only to children. He focused, he, he, you can always count on Lewis to keep the main thing the main thing. He focused on the na nativity, the incarnation of the Son of God, and because his heart and mind were focused on God's grace and love towards us in Jesus Christ, Lewis was able to escape the gravitational pull of the world's obsession of the material side of life. And so it is with this same mindset as that of Lewis that I approach today's story about the nativity, the earthly father of the incarnate Son of God. Matthew 2. And the reason why I'm starting with Matthew 2 instead of uh, uh, Matthew 1 is because Matthew 2, in this short chapter, six of the more than 300 Old Testament prophecies about the life of our Lord 
were actually fulfilled, six. So I'm going to uh, point them out to you, okay? Uh, verse 1, now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. That was fulfilled in terms of he being uh, born in Bethlehem of Judea, which is the city that produced the line of Davidic kings. Verse 2, saying, Where is he who has been born of the king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. This fulfills Numbers 24, 17. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him, and assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. Verse 5, they told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for it is written by the prophet. The prophet means Micah. 5-2, And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So, skipping to uh, verse 13. Now, when they, they being the three wise men, had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he, Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Hosea. 11.1, 1, out of Egypt I called my son. And to put that into context, the entire verse of Hosea 11.1, 1, when Israel was a child, I loved him. And out of Egypt I called my son. Verses 16 to 17 would fulfill Jeremiah 31, 15. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and all the region, all that region who were two years or older, or under, excuse me, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, 31.15. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping and loud lamentation. Verse 23 will fulfill a general theme in the Old Testament that the Messiah would be despised, just like the village of Nazareth was despised despised in his time. Rachel refused to be comforted because there are no more. Verse 19, th this is very solemn. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Arise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. 
But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he should be called, would be called a Nazarene. And if you've been to Nazareth, uh, some of us have. Uh, Pastor Allen, no offense, but there ain't nothing there, brother. It's just a chapel and a couple of olive presses and maybe a couple of mules, a couple of villagers doing their, you know, their thing. It's just very unimpressive, brother. It's not the Sea of Galilee, you know what I mean? What good can be out, could come out of Nazareth was the phrase at the time. The bottom line is that the Old Testament prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus, the Messiah. Dr. Peter Stoner in Science Speaks says that by applying the science of probability to just eight of the more than 300 prophecies that were fulfilled, six fulfilled in chapter 2 alone, if, if, if you just put the, the, the probability uh, of eight of those prophecies coming to pass, we find that the chance that any man might have lived down to the present time and fulfilled all eight prophecies, you know what the chances are? It's one in ten to the 17th power. Now, I got a Ph.D. in mathematician sitting right here. I got a former actuary sitting right here. I'll take them both to lunch if they can tell me what the word is for 10th to the 17th power. You can't Google it. That fact confirms the accuracy and reliability of the Scriptures and assures us that the Bible is the inspired Word of God. It is inspired, it is reliable, and we can absolutely base our lives on it. And Matthew 2 explains how Jesus' personal history, you've got to interpret it this way, because my, my original message was supposed to be just on Hosea 11, 1 and Matthew 2. I just, I, I did a switcheroo. But the way you interpret Matthew 2 is in light of Israel's national history. That's the only way you can connect it back to, the, to, to Hosea. Okay? Jesus' personal history repeats certain aspects of Israel, Israel's national history. So let me just summarize it quickly for you. Herod the Great was the ruler during the time of Jesus' birth. We saw many of his grandiose theaters and palaces that he built in Jerusalem while we were there. There were some Persian astrologers, wise guys I call them. They entered into his, his royal court, told him about this ancient prophecy that was being fulfilled, well, the text tells us that Herod assembled all of his, his chief priests and religious teachers. They, they literally combed through the ancient manuscripts, the scrolls, to tell him where this promised king was to be born. And they identified the location as Bethlehem, the house of bread. Matthew also tells us that when Herod received word of this coming kingdom, he understood something of what that meant. He understood that these promises meant that this king who was to come would rule over a vast empire and would have no rivals to his throne. Herod, obviously, is troubled. And all Jerusalem with him, and this trouble basically blew a gasket. Okay? 
he goes into a murderous rage. And to say that Herod, this Herod, struggled with jealousy was an understatement. This is the same king who murdered his own wife, murdered several of his sons and other relatives just because he was suspicious that they presented a threat to his throne. Pastor Allen, I think we get the, the idiom, you know, stabbed in the back. I think we get it from the Greeks and the Romans. Because I tell you, if they, if they just had a slight suspicion, you were dead. You were dead. So the presence of Jesus brings about the kind of rage among those who are threatened by Jesus' kingship. Herod and Pharaoh, follow with me now. Herod and Pharaoh raged against babies in general. And throughout the whole storyline of Scripture, babies are the ones who get caught in the crossfire. It is always this way. It shouldn't come as a surprise. Whether it's the giving up, the sacrifice of infant babies to the god Molech in Leviticus 18.21 or the violence that comes against women with babies in their wombs in Hosea 13.16, human history, biblical history, is riddled with the courses of babies. And it happens here again. The thief comes to steal, to kill, to destroy, and make no mistake about it. He begins with babies. In the womb, outside the womb, it didn't matter. What Herod does not know, however, is that as he orders, he orders in these consultants and commands that all the male children be executed, he is actually playing a role that has already been played in history. He just didn't know it. Herod here is playing the role of Pharaoh. Keep following with me, all right? Which brings us to verses 14 and 15. And he, Joseph, rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt, verse 15, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Hosea. Out of Egypt I called my son. That's my introduction. It is here that I'd like for us to focus on the Joseph of Nazareth. In our day, I've never seen a nativity play in a church where Joseph had any words. Anybody here, Joseph, say a single word in any nativity play ever? I have not. He's like a sidekick, right? He stands, he kneels beside Mary, his wife, and these, all these nativity plays. Matthew, on the other hand, presents Joseph as a central character in the gospel story. And, and all of you can put up chapter 1, Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 to 25. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way when his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, 
For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. Verse 21, she will bear a son. You will call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us, Isaiah. Verse 24, when Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had, been, until she had given birth to a son, and he called his name Jesus. Now, Matthew informs us in this first chapter that Joseph was a just and righteous man. That's in verse 19. The Holy Spirit even commends his life and faith. We know that Joseph is not Jesus' biological father. All right? Fact number one. But he takes Jesus into his life. He takes Jesus into his home. And I want you to get this. Instant, immediate obedience, both chapter 1 and chapter 2. He took Mary, he took Mary home with him to be his wife. Immediately obeys the, the angel's directive in verses 24 and 25. Takes this child with him. Joseph is the one who names Jesus according to the instruction of the angel, says Matthew. Joseph is the first human face to which our Lord would have said, Abba. Joseph would have taught Jesus Christ how to saw wood in his carpentry shop. And we did see that shop in Nazareth. Joseph would have taught Jesus how to recite Deuteronomy 6 to 8 in Hebrew. The very words, get this. The very words which Jesus would later recite to the evil one during his own temptation in the wilderness. He would recite, man does not live by bread alone, but man lives by every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. You shall not tempt the Lord your God. Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. Where do you think he's, he learned those words? From, G, from Joseph, his dad. At home, they would read Deuteronomy over and over again. He, Jesus, I mean, those verses just didn't pop into Jesus' mind, guys. He memorized, he recited scripture just like we do. And the only way it came out of him during the trial and the temptation was that he learned it as a child early on. Parents, don't underestimate the power of the word of God when we read it. When we read it to, the, the, to our children. And throw in the Chronicles of Narnia while you're at it. Okay? If they get bored, you got to come up with the Chronicles of Narnia to help them understand. Because imagination sparks the reason, says Lewis. So don't underestimate that. Even though they, they may run away from God, they may fall away. It's that word that's going to keep them. Don't underestimate that influence, that power. Joseph had over Jesus and James, I might add. I hate to be a part of that sibling rivalry. Jesus and James in the same household. It is through Joseph that Matthew traces Jesus' heritage all the way back to David and to Abraham. 
Joseph's faith and his righteousness is the way in which he takes this woman and protects this child. Joseph provides for this child and Mary. And Matthew says that as Joseph takes them to Egypt, it is to fulfill the ancient word out of Egypt, I called my son. I was going to preach on just that verse right there. That's what we call evangelical interpretive schizophrenia, which I won't go into that today. Because Hosea 11.1 isn't a prophecy. It's not a prophecy. It's a looking back. It's not a prophecy as, you, as we traditionally think of the other prophecies that are looking forward. Hosea had no idea, you know, uh, of the, the flight to Egypt that Joseph and Mary was going to make. He had no idea. He's looking back backwards at Israel's history. So look at this with me. Matthew looks back at Hosea. Hosea looks back at Israel's national history. That was what was fulfilled. Not necessarily a forward-looking prophecy, as we understand it to be. So if you look at the text in Hosea from which this comes and say, this is referencing something long past, long time ago. It is speaking of Israel being brought to Egypt and then being delivered from there during the Exodus. And that's exactly right. This too, precisely, is Matthew's point, that Israel being delivered out of Egypt is a carbon copy in advance of what God is doing with Jesus Christ. That's why these, all of these biblical stories that you hear about, the dividing of the Red Sea and all of that, it all ties in together into one story. It all leads up to what God is doing with Jesus Christ. Israel, the one that had been promised to be the light of the nations, is in danger of starving to death in a desert. God provides for Israel by putting them in a sojourn for a time in Egypt where they can be fed and provided for under the leadership of the first Joseph. Remember? God puts one of Jacob's sons in a position where he's able to look out for his own people, saying that he will care for them and their little ones in Genesis 47, 23 to 24. And that man's name is Joseph. That's not coincidental. That's Godcidental, right, Pastor? Well, 2,000 years later, God uses another Joseph to take this child into Egypt until the threat of the sword is over. God then compares Joseph's protection to his own fatherly protection and deliverance of Israel. The protection that Joseph images here is personal, and it's a familial kind of protection, provision. Dr. Russell Moore, I know everybody knows him from the Ethics and Religious Commission of the SBC. I'll always remember him as my favorite professor at Southern Seminary because he gave me a B in, in the history of the Baptist. Thank you, Lord. Uh, <laughs> Dr. Moore, he images, this is so powerful. He describes it as like the kind of fatherhood our heavenly father displays. This is a fighting fatherhood who fights for his family. This, this kind of fatherhood rips open the Red Seas, drowns the armies, fights for the vulnerable and the orphans. I want to emphasize just absolutely how cult, countercultural Joseph's act of obedience is here. 
the custom of betrothal. Okay, listen, young people. This is very important. The ancient custom of betrothal back then was different from our modern-day practice of engagement. All right? The ancient custom dictated that the parents of a young man chose, the parents of the young man chose a young woman to be engaged to their son. Now, Steve's sons are sitting about squirming about now. Just relax, guys. It'll be fine. Joseph's betrothed comes to him and says, I'm pregnant. That's a showstopper. I do not think that Joseph's response was, well, it's beginning to look a lot like Christmas everywhere you go. You think Joseph had that reaction? I do not think so. I think his reaction was more like the Hank Williams song that I grew up in Arkansas listening to. You cheating hard. Will make you weep. You'll cry and cry and try to sleep, but sleep won't come the whole night through. You guys got to remember, I grew up in Arkansas. And when I, you know, I was just learning the language, getting there as a refugee. And I'd hear this song over and over. You see how, how well I remembered it? I had no idea what the words meant, guys. You know? Forty years later, I finally know what the words meant. When, jo when Joseph moves to Egypt, he is doing something extremely significant. Do not get this. I mean, don't forget this. You don't just move to Egypt. It was a 90-mile trek from Bethlehem to the border of Egypt, by the way. And they didn't have Air Force One. Okay? It, it's not like me moving my elderly mother back and forth from Arkansas for four years, okay? It's not like that. It's not like Ellen moving up from Missouri, all right? When Joseph moves to Egypt, he is foregoing all of his economic security. He's walking away from the carpentry business that has been handed down perhaps from generations back. He's walking away from all of his relationships. And Dr. Russell Moore goes on to say that had he, Joseph, simply done what he initially wanted to do, remember in chapter 1, what did Joseph actually want to do? Thank you, Jerry. He wanted to quietly divorce this woman and allow the child to be slaughtered by Herod. Let's just, let's just, let's just fast forward. I mean, if you, put, if you put her away, divorce, that kid's going to get killed by Herod. He could have, Joseph could have lived to a ripe old age as a father of Nazareth, revered by everybody. Instead, Joseph ended his life with his neighbors probably saying, Joseph, he's the one who got into trouble with that young woman way back when. What a shame. Think about it. I mean, stop, the, when you read this story, you got to think about it. But instead of seeking praise at his own funeral, Joseph does something unusual. He protects the orphans and the widows. 
He sees the task of fatherhood as more important than the self. And that's immensely difficult for all of us to see. Extremely difficult. Stuart McAlpine, uh, who wrote this wonderful Advent overture that I'm working through. Thanks, KJ. Stuart McAlpine, he's a senior lecturer with C.S. Lewis uh, Institute. He says, do not turn off the road like Joseph was tempted to do and settle for the quiet alternative. He could have done that. Do not divorce the love of God from this passage. It is worth dealing with the shame of what we would rather not face than live a life of unresolved blame before God. That is so deep. I'm going to read it again. Do not turn off the road like Joseph was tempted to do and settle for the quiet alternative. Do not divorce the love of God. It is worth dealing with the shame of what we would rather not face than live a life of unresolved blame before God. Joseph made the tough decisions to rather face the shame than living a life of unresolved blame. He has always been the father I want to strive to be when I grow up. Seriously. That is, Joseph has always been my role model. But you won't find him in Hebrews 11. You won't find him in the profiles of, of uh, you know, courage books written anywhere in human history. But we'll see him in heaven. Finally, when Joseph leaves and takes the child, the text says that this fulfills what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 31:15. A voice was heard in Ramah. In speaking of the city Ramah, that was the way station for the people of Israel as they were being taken out of captivity in Babylon. The text here calls forward the sound of the wailing of women who lost their children at this way station as they were Required to get rid of them. The text is fulfilled here in Matthew. For she, Israel, is refusing to be comforted because her children are no more. But don't miss this. This is not a text of despair. Even that, you got to go back to Jeremiah and read Jeremiah 31. The text from Jeremiah comes from the passage that says, There is hope for your future. For the time is coming when I will make a new covenant, not like the covenant I made with your forefathers. Even in the midst of all this tragedy, this murderous rage, in the midst of all these corpses of babies, there's light that's coming out of Galilee. Joseph returns home. God directs him towards Nazareth so that it will be fulfilled that he, Jesus, will be a Nazarene. There is life coming out of Galilee to draw all the nations to Christ, as Philip alluded to in one of those songs. Though Israel as a people is rejected for their disobedience, they will be called to return to know once again the God of the universe, their creator, and the seed who has come through David's lineage our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable and can never be withdrawn, Paul says in Romans eleven twenty nine. 29. Although Israel was called to be a great nation and a blessing to all the other nations, 
that promise to Abraham was not completely fulfilled until the Lord Jesus Christ himself came. In the fullness of time, we see that all of the Old Testament prophecies fulfilled in Christ for only in his day are the nations actually included in the redeemed community. So Israel coming out of Egypt, a nation coming out of Egypt was not obedient, but God judged and restores her in the true Israel, embodied in the person of Jesus Christ, who came in the flesh and does what the former Israel should have done. He, Jesus, was not idolatrous. He lived a perfect, sinless life. He was obedient, suffered to the point of death on the cross, a death that he did not deserve, but did so for us in order to restore and reconcile us to a holy God. Jesus became all that we are in order that he might save us from our sins and messed up lives to bring us back to God the Father. As the resurrected Messiah, Jesus is the perfect Israel, and all those who place their faith in him are the children of Abraham, both Jews and Gentiles. You and I, saints, are connected to this sweeping redemptive story. And God has connected us to his redemptive history from beginning to end. Out of Egypt, I called my son. And where there's a son, there certainly is a father. This message, though, is not just for those who are parents. Scripture speaks of a fatherhood within the church. Again, uh, quoting my favorite professor, Dr. Moore. He said, if we're going to walk in the walk of faith imaged in this man, Joseph, and we're going to need pastors who see themselves as fathers of a flock, do not simply leave when trouble comes. We're going to need older generations who are less concerned about protecting their own prerogatives and more concerned about pouring their lives into the children of the congregation. There must be evident in the people of God a demonstration of the same thing that, G that Joseph was asked to do, to walk in the kind of faith that protects and provides, that nourishes and cher cherishes as God does. Now I realize this time of year, when I bring up the word father, it invokes all sorts of images for people, okay? Um, I see my wife and two of her 14 siblings here. When I say the word father, I know they're going to they're gonna think Tony Longo. And they're going to think about warm memories. They're going to think about a lot of laughter, a lot of tears. They're going to think about the family roundtable discussions. About usually about the same thing over and over again, as I recall. About how, how, how he got into the Cubs games for a quarter in his day. Well, for others of us, for others of us, the word father is associated with absence. You got kids whose parents are in jail, rejection, hurt and a lot of pain. At times, we've been, we, we have greatly distorted what the role of a father was intended to be. And some think God is just waiting around the corner with a club or a baseball bat to punish them. Others think that God has a mean face. I don't think 
I don't like to think of them looking at me, they say to themselves. Our images of God the Father are a powerful combination of thoughts and feelings. This is why it's so important to understand that God is not the not only the heavenly father, but he is a good father who took us out of our spiritual Egypt. Don't miss this. He took us out of our spiritual Egypt and calls us his sons and daughters. Romans 8.15 says, For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, the same words. That Jesus said to Joseph, Abba. Galatians 4, 7 says, Therefore you are no longer a slave. You are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. 1 John 3, 1, See what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. That is what we are. The fact that you're loved by God, I, I understand, I get it. It can be a difficult truth to grasp because my own dad died when I was just seven in the Vietnam War. I get it. A difficult concept to grasp. And Stuart McAlpine, in his, uh, this is one of our required lectures in the C.S. Lewis Institute, his, his comments about the prodigal son, he said the unfortunate thing about the about Christians is that although God, we know God has adopted us as his sons and daughters in Christ, we continue to be bogged down. We continue to live our lives. We continue to think and carry around guilt and shame and sin that can prevent us from believing in and experiencing the authentic, true love of God. In essence, we still view ourselves as slaves rather than as children. Bitterness and past experiences remain in our hearts and minds. And over the years, we grab hold of a lie that God wants good just for others, not for ourselves. Saints, that's just not what Scripture says about God our Father. It doesn't. Think about how the Father figure of God is described and what this says about his character. He embraces the prodigal son and the older and the older brother. Embraces them both. He's loving, accepting, and much more patient than I am. In Luke 15. He takes care of the sparrows, but says that he cares much more for his children than the sparrows. He provides and is attuned to our needs. Matthew 10. He goes after every single lost sheep until it is found. He pursues a relationship with us and doesn't ever get tired of looking after the lost. These two truths, what I'm about to say, these two truths have the most transformative power in your life. They are these. One, you can be God's child if you will welcome him into your heart, into your life. You can be God's child. Not all religions can say that. Number two, God is a good, good father. Saints, we're all called, we're all called 
to walk this walk of faith, the same walk of faith that Joseph walked. Instant, immediate obedience, whatever he tells us to do. And our churches are to follow. It always comes back to the local church. Don't forget that. Always ties back to the local church. Our churches are to follow in the walk of faith, which means that, like Joseph walking away from stability of, and comfort, our churches also have to be different. Now, he's on the way here this morning. I heard Dr. Crawford Loretz. You know, he said, our, church, our churches must be countercultural. It's got to be the kind of place where the, the teen, teenage mother is welcomed and loved, where children whose parents are in jail are received, where a culture that is in love with death can come and hear a message saying that life is better than death because there's a God-man who is standing as the ruler over all the nations in the universe. And he's not dead anymore. What we must have is a church in which the gospel we give is the kind of gospel that leads people out of death, out of despair, and towards the kind of life that is found in confessing a name, a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'd like for Philip to come up. And I know we're, we're, we've got a family meeting to run. But I, I want you to just, <laughs> just reflect a little bit, okay, this, this season. You need to reflect about how good God is as our Heavenly Father. He is. He loves us so much. As, as Philip sings this song, Good, Good Father, just, just take a moment. This is the one time of the season where you can just take time and just reflect on that. And then uh, uh, we'll make some announcements and Pastor Allen will close us out in prayer. of think you're light but I've heard the tender whisper of love in the dead of night and you tell me that you're pleased and I'm never alone you're a good good father it's who you are, it's who you are, it's who you are, and I'm loved by you. It's who I am, it's who I am, it's who I am. Oh, and I've seen for answers far and wide but I know they're all searching for answers only you provide us know just what we need before we say a word you're a good good father it's who you are it's who you are 
I hope it is your experience that you have met the good, good Father. Elder Doug, thank you so much for that wonderful reflection on God's Word and this man, Joseph, who's often overlooked. His role is underappreciated, understated, but without question, a man of great faith man of unquestionable integrity, who believed God and then acted in obedience to the word of God spoken to him, to be the husband and father of the Lord Jesus, a child that he did not have anything to do with conceiving. 
and could have taken off like many men do when the woman they're in love with comes to them and says, I'm pregnant. He could have taken off and never looked back. But instead, he said, I'm here. We're going to do this together. We're going to trust God. And as a result, here we are with the privilege to trust God, follow him, and be obedient to him ourselves. May God help us. Father, thank you so much for the word of God to our hearts today, the example of Joseph. I pray for every man in this place today, every young man, every little boy growing up in this church, that you would help us to follow the example of Joseph, to take up the responsibility of manhood, to take a wife and the children given to us, and to lead them, to provide for them, to protect them, to bless them. Lord, thank you for being our Heavenly Father. Despite the challenges many of us face with our earthly fathers, thank you for being the one true perfect Father who will never leave us, never forsake us, who will always guide and provide. Help us to trust you despite the failures that come with our human fathers. Lord, we bless you today. We love you. Thank you for first loving us. We pray in Jesus' name and for his sake and all God's people said. Amen. And amen.